So John chapter 7. Um, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but our world is getting more and more anti-Christian. Right? More skeptical, um, not just of Christianity, but skeptical of the church. Right? And I think one of these reasons that we're seeing is that instead of actually putting our faith in the church's witness or putting our faith in our own personal witness, what we've been seeing is that, that many Christians are actually running to their, their political party of choice right, and putting their faith in a representative who might carry a conservative title but lack Christian character. See, this has confused many people and has caused many millennials to abandon the church. Uh, there's also an aggressive Christianity out there that, that pretty much puts down, tears down anyone who disagrees with them on, in, on any really issue surrounding their faith. And a lot of times the way that they push the truth pushes away people who knew Jesus the most. Right? Other things that are aiding the departure from the faith is, is the rise of church scandals, the falling of its leaders, there's the rise of the anti-Christian influencers, right, on social media just spewing deception. There's the effects of years of liberal universities shaping the minds of generations. And because of this and many other things, people have deconstructed, meaning they have, they have left the faith, right, and they are now considering themselves um, what is called nuns, that if they were asked what religious affiliation are you, they would check the box, none, Along with this, the world runs to their progressive, me-centered agenda of self-empowerment where you can be whoever you want, whatever you want, and redefine historically established terms to live into this self-defined reality. And if anyone questions you, right, then you're being hateful. Our world is getting crazier day by day. And on top of that, with the rapid, you know, advancement of technology, like why put your faith in God when you have, you know, Google, Amazon, smartphones, right? Not to mention Elon Musk's robots, right? I don't know if you guys saw, but Elon Musk literally is making robots um, and he's going to be selling them to you guys for less than the price of a car. Um, and so, but I'm just like, I'm thinking, okay, like have we not learned like Terminator 1, Terminator 2, like, like, and if Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't get you it, because try Will Smith, like, I am robot, like, it's not going to work. Anyways, it's cool. If you get one, let me know. I want to check it out. Um, but our world is, it's getting crazier, and we're putting our faith in a lot of other things than God in our culture. And so many of us are trying to maintain our witness in a hyper-political, culturally confused, unbelieving world. And so the question is this, how do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? All right, so let's find out. John chapter 7, look down with me, verse 1. It says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he is unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, and some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly, for, uh, openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
But it was now the midst of the feast, and Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of this teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your grace, and for your truth. We thank you that this morning we can come to your word and that you instruct us by your spirit how to live for you and to love people like you. And so we just pray now that you would uh, impart truth to us, that you would speak, and that you would move in this church in such a way that we would be a great witness for the name of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been in the book of John. Um, we've been seeing Jesus kind of bringing in the kingdom, right? He's teaching. He's healing. The last thing that we saw, he was multiplying the fish and the loaves. Then he says that I am the bread of life, right? And then he says, he tells people like, hey, like eat my flesh, drink my blood, right? Like wasn't a huge, um, you know, crowd, um, you know, grower. Wasn't a mega church uh, moment. And so we see people leaving Jesus in droves. Um, and so... In this moment in John, there's kind of a shift between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. Um, up to this point, Jesus is kind of openly teaching and, and doing miracles. But John chapter 7, he starts to kind of go covert on us because the, the Jews were trying to kill him. Right? The religious leaders were trying to kill him. If you remember in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a layman on the Sabbath, which wasn't something that they liked. Um, but it wasn't just because of that. Uh, the healing at the pool was symbolic. Right, Jesus was confronting their religious elite. Right, it'd be pretty much like if Jesus came down today and started going into all the churches where people are teaching off doctrine and saying like, you know, you guys are wrong. Like the prosperity teachers, the preachers with sneakers, right, wherever they're going, like there's, they're going and they're getting um, kind of confronted by the Son of God. And so Jesus is here. He's going into the legalistic churches and saying, you're putting burdens on people that they can't carry, that you don't even carry yourself. And so he's confronting the religious elite and saying, you guys are teaching the heart of God, but you are, I mean, you're teaching the law of God, but you're missing the heart, right? You're missing the whole point, calling out the leaders of that time. And because of this, they felt threatened and they were trying to kill him. And so last we saw, uh, Jesus was at the Passover feast, um, and six months later, we're now at the, t the Feast of Booths, right? So this Feast of Booths, the kind of context of where we're at, there's three Jewish festivals that every Jewish man was required to be at. The Feast of Booths is one, where they would actually celebrate God's provision in the wilderness and build like these little booths, tabernacles, these little like palm tree tents um, on top of the roofs. They'd pretty much go camping on top of their roofs for this feast. Um, and so that's what's been going on. And so Jesus' brothers are on the way up to this feast. Um, and now they're challenging Jesus. They're challenging God's call on his life as the Messiah. And so our first point is this. Jesus was challenged in his call by those close and far. Anybody in here a middle child? Who's a, where are my middle children at? Secondborns? Secondborns? Okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah, me too. Okay, cool. So, um, there's a stereotype that the secondborn or the middle child kind of like lives in the shadow of the older sibling. Like, where's my older siblings at? There you are. Come on. It's okay. Yeah. The chosen ones. All right. Good job. Congratulations. Uh, um, so, there's this stereotype, and this doesn't apply to every family. I get that. But for the most part, you got the older sibling 
who's, you know, kind of a perfectionist maybe, does what mom and dad wants, a little bit more responsible. You know, they need to be examples for their, their younger siblings. Um, and so my experience growing up was very much that. Um, I was a middle child, had an older brother, awesome dude, loves the Lord. Um, he's the kind of kid that you wanted as a parent, you know, and so he stayed the straight and narrow, didn't party, didn't do all that stuff. He was just a good kid. He loved the Lord at a young age. He went to youth group every week. He became the worship leader at youth group while in high school. He was the kind of kid, so you know what he did on Wednesdays for fun, is he led worship under the tree at his public high school every Wednesday. So that was my brother. That was what I got to kind of live um, up to. That was the bar that was set for me. Good times. And so here comes Danny trying to, I'm going to be like my big brother. Like, no, you're not. Like, you're not going to be like your big brother. Um, and I, I tried to live into that expectation. Didn't really work. And um, I know my parents, they probably didn't say it out loud, but I'm sure they, you know, thought like, why can't Daniel be like his older brother, you know? Like, what went wrong with this one? Like, same parenting, just... You know, anyway, so I very quickly carved my own path and, you know, jumped into the party scene and was that rebellious black sheep, the like literal prodigal son story um, in real life. And if, um, so, so I struggled pretty hard until Jesus, of course, came in, radically rescued me and redeemed me, set me on a path to become like him. And so in God's grace, mercy, and sovereignty, he came after me and he set me free, right? So there's a, there's a beautiful story there. But in that sibling tension, we know what that kind of could feel like. So think about Jesus and his brothers, that, that sibling tension. Right, what would that look like? Um, and so I don't know about you guys, but there's moments maybe that your, your brother or your sister, you know, they become a little bit more successful than you or they're doing a little bit better at a certain stage of life than you or getting a little bit more attention than you. And what, what kind of happens is like a shift inside. Like we love them. Right, but we're a little like a little maybe resentful, like, oh, why is it happening to them, not me, right? And there could be this envy or something there, right? And so I really couldn't imagine Jesus being my older brother. <laughs> like, I mean, I can because he is right now, but like growing up with him in the house, like the perfect Jesus, the sinless Christ as your older brother. Like, try living into that shadow. Um, most of what we get about Jesus' brother relationships, we're kind of inferring from the Bible. It doesn't say that they were jealous. It doesn't say that Mary had all these expectations of the other brothers. But we can infer just knowing the sibling tension and dynamics that we see all through the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, read it. It's good for you. Um, that must have been difficult, right? And I'm assuming Mary had probably said this at least one time, like, why can't you be more like Jesus, <laughs> right? I mean, I say that to my kids all the time. I don't know if it's working. Um, but it's, it's, it's what we see. And so we see Jesus, the perfect brother, going around, doing healings, doing teachings. And, like, his brothers are like, man, like, he really is perfect. Like, dang it. You know, like, like is he really the Messiah, Right? And so they're questioning and they're doubting his identity. There'd be times where he'd be teaching and his brothers would go and they're like, hey, like Jesus, like let's go home. Like sorry, he's lost his mind. Like they're trying to save face for the family. Um, and so here we see them doubting their brother's identity, skeptical of their messianic brother and challenging him in his beliefs, challenging him in his call from God. Right, and so we see that in verse 3, right? They say, go up to Judea and, and show yourself, right? Judea was the southern region of Israel that Jerusalem was in. So they're saying, go to Jerusalem. Like, let's stop hanging out here in Galilee, playing it safe. Like, if you're really the Messiah, go to the political center, Jerusalem, and take your throne as king. And then maybe we'll believe you. Right, and so if you guys remember after the feeding of the 5,000, that's what the crowds were wanting to do. And so his brothers are now identifying himself, themselves with the crowds, 
Well, we know that they didn't actually believe. It says that in verse 5, that they didn't even believe. Even though they're saying, go do these things, there was unbelief in their hearts. They wanted him to do things their way, to prove it on their terms. But, they were submit- he, but he was submitted to God's plans. Right, he was on a completely different timetable. He would prove himself as the Messiah, but not in the way that they wanted him to. Right? He didn't play their games. He submitted to God. Right? So here's the thing, and I'm sure that it wasn't easy for Jesus, but... Jesus has experienced the heartache and the struggle of what it's like to have unbelieving family members. Like he knows, he understands. And it must be so hard because his brothers, they saw his miracles, they heard his teachings, they were close to Jesus and yet they did not believe. They were so desensitized to Jesus, to the truth, to the redemptive reality that was right in front of them. Like none of the miracles meant anything. Like the healings, the forgiveness, the mercy, the loving redemption of sinners, the heart of God right in front of them was not what they wanted. They wanted proof on their terms and in their ways. See, we can struggle here with family members who have maybe been raised in the church. They've been so close to God's workings and teachings and yet do not believe. Or maybe they've changed their political view. Maybe they changed their stance on LGBTQ, right, or, or something that they don't like about the church, something about Christianity or something they learned about church history, right. And, and, and they're like, well, if you were just to compromise and give in to, to our request, then maybe we'll believe you. Like just switch your stance on this and then maybe I'll come back to church. I see the brothers are trying to get Jesus to come and to compromise God's timing on his life. But Jesus says, my time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because they testify that its deeds are evil. And so here's the thing is, is the world couldn't hate the brothers because the world only hates things that are of God. And so Jesus is really saying is like, man, it can't hate you. It can't hate you because you're of the world. See, the word world here, what, it's, what John is saying is that, is that the structures, the systems, the culture that is opposed to God and rebellion to God. And he's like, they won't, and Jesus is like, it won't oppose you, brothers. Why? Because in this moment, the brothers were still in the world, still questioning, still doubting God's goodness, obviously revealed in the person of Jesus. And I'm thinking, man, like families, if you guys all know this, families can be one of the hardest mission fields one of the hardest places to witness. All right, those of you that have unbelieving family members, you understand the, the, the extremely difficult battle. And not every time, but a lot of times it's our faith that causes this, you know, contention with our close friends and family members who don't believe. Right, and if, it, and, and if it's not causing some kind of conflict, right, then it's just not discussed at all. Like we kind of sweep it under the rug and, okay, let's just not talk about it. Right, which kind of kills us a little bit on the inside because we want them to know Jesus. But we also don't want to start a fight. We don't want to burn bridges. We don't want to lose our friends and family. So how do we navigate these relationships? Jesus is going to show us here in a little bit. But right now, we see that God comes into our life. Jesus comes in our life. The gospel transforms our life. And then our life naturally exposes the world of its evils. Right? We see that in verse 7. Jesus is doing it. He is God in the flesh. He's light, love, holiness in the flesh. His teaching and his very being exposes evil intentions of people's hearts. And so as his followers, our lives should do the same. It should be a natural overflow from our relationship with Jesus and our imitation of him. 
And so maybe the invites to, you know, partying and going out, maybe they stop happening or maybe they're not as frequent. Maybe you stop getting invited to going to outings where there's some, like, gray area things going on for Christians, right? And believe me and you, as a, as a pastor, yeah, I stopped getting in the inv- invites to those kind of things a while ago. Um, and so you, you understand. You, know, you can be a little upset about it, but I forgive you. I love you. Jesus loves you. We're fine. Um, but if the world hates you, If your family antagonizes you because of your faith, you're probably, you know, living your faith out in a way that will cause that reaction. That means you're probably living out your relationship with Jesus. Now, you don't want to cause a war of politics and beliefs. Like, we're not out, like, seeking to condemn and yell at the world for being the world. Like, they can't help it. Like, they don't have Christ. They don't have truth. See, Jesus experiences these things that he calls us into. He leads by examples. He knows the kind of struggles that we face. In John chapter 15, a little bit later, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the, world, remember the word that I said, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew 10, 34 to 36 says, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, this can be kind of a tricky passage because we're thinking, like, isn't Jesus like the prince of peace? Like, what do you mean he didn't come to bring peace? And so we got to remember that Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. Right? He came to take care of our sin problem, right? to, to die on the cross for our sins that we would then be able to be reunited with our Heavenly Father. So there's peace going this way. And hopefully when we get saved, that peace with God helps us to become peacemakers and then peace with our other relationships start happening. But the gospel is offensive. Right? And so what happens is if there's a family member who's all out for Jesus and one who's not, that's going to cause some kind of division. It will naturally do that. We are living for completely different kingdoms, for for completely different worlds. And so Jesus is saying is that, man, I've came and my coming will cause division in the home. Because some will believe and some will not. And so we have to expect that if the world hates Jesus, that we're going to catch some of that heat too. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the challenge of friends and family who challenge our faith? The world, our unsafe friends and family members will try to get us to do things on their terms to prove the points they want us to prove, just like the brothers are doing to Jesus, but Jesus was on a different timetable. All right, which, which leads us to our next point. Jesus submitted to God's timing and God's plan. In verse 8, Jesus says, go up to the feast yourselves, talking to his brothers. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but in secret. And so I know this is, again, another confusing part. We're like, hey, Jesus just said he's not going up to the feast, but then he's going up. What's going on, right? And so Jesus is really, what he's saying here, he's like, I'm not going to go up the way you want me to. I'm not going to go up with a big family entourage. Like, oh, here comes Jesus. I mean, here comes Jesus' family. Let's, like, let's go find him. It's not like this big moment where, like, you know, um, he's making his grand entrance. It was not yet his time. And so... He's saying, I'm not going to come up publicly with you guys. But again, remember, Jesus had to go to the feast. 
every Jewish man was required to go by the Mosaic law. And Jesus had to fulfill the law perfectly. So we know he had to go up, just not publicly. And so his brothers were trying to get Jesus to do something their way, the way that they thought was right. Now, we experience this maybe in some other ways. We have family or friends who, you know, they tell us, they try to get us to do things on their timetable, what they expect, right? If you've, if you've ever been married, you understand this as a newlywed, right? You get married and the first thing people want is what? Kids, there we go, right? And so the first thing, you, they want kids. So you're married, literally at the wedding reception. So sweet. So uh, when are the kids coming? Like, uh, cool, boy, girl, do you know yet? Like, it's the wedding. Like, what's going on, right? And so you're getting all of these people saying, like, you need to have kids. You need to have kids. Like, I'm sure the first time back at church, the first thing you hear is like, so kids? You know, like, uh? and, um, you know, you're getting call from the grandparents. Like, hey, like, dad, like, I've been married for a day. You know, like, back off. And so, um, I've literally had people, when me and my wife got married, we weren't really into kids. Um, and so, but I had people come up to us like, hey, you know, it's God's will that you have kids. You know, like, so you don't be out of God's will. Like, be fruitful and multiply. I'm like, I get that. I'm in Old Testament, and I do think it can be part of God's will. I was like, and I, I would ask them, they're like, so who is he saying that to? Adam, yeah, okay, and then, and then Noah, cool. It's interesting, Paul said that it's actually more beneficial for the kingdom if you remain single. Hmm, wouldn't that naturally imply that they don't have kids? You know, so I'd always kind of like go back and forth with people in the Bible. So I like having those moments. It's exciting. All right. So if you want to talk about that, come talk to me afterwards. Um, right. But so what people will try to do is they're going to try to get you to live according to their timetable. Right. The world will try to get you to do things according to its plans. So how do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We don't bow down to the world's demands and its timetables and its plans, right? We submit to God's timing and his plans. So you remember, they wanted him to go and make himself public, making him the political king, right, with earthly political issues um, that he could help solve. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't look to the unbelieving crowds for its cues. Who did he look to? In John chapter 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in a like manner. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not doing the will of his brothers, right? He's not, he's not giving in to the demands of the crowds, but the plans of the father. As he sees God moving, he moves. As he hears God's voice, he judges. Like Jesus, we seek God and his plans. And this is ever more true in engaging in unbelieving worlds. They're going to want us to play their game, to do things their way. But Jesus was constantly being questioned by everybody, including his family, but his eyes were on God. Not proving himself in the moment, but submitting to God's way of things, God's plans. Right, the word says that a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Are our eyes on the Lord? Are we looking to him as we interact with our unbelieving friends and families? Or are we just doing a kind of a knee-jerk reaction trying to prove ourselves? And so how do we know what we should do? How, how do we know what his plans are? He's shown us, right, in his word. Right, God has given us his word. This is where he speaks. This is where he shows us things. See, Jesus was the word of God, right? So he kind of had that like built in, like he was the word, right? But we've been given the word 
the written word, Jesus the word, and the Holy Spirit, right? So God's word is how he shows us his plans. It's how he shows us his will. Even some of his timetable. Right, Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, it's our guide. It's our help. And you know that the, the path of talking to your unbelieving friends and family, right, relating to those who don't believe, that's one of the most difficult paths to walk. And if you have those friends and family, you know how difficult it could be to navigate those conversations sometimes. Right, and I think about like, like a, a difficult hiking trail. I'm not a big hiker and I can kind of struggle and people can laugh at me. But if you, if you think about an advanced hiking trail, okay, and think about all the things that you have, right, you're going to have like big gaps. You might have to jump over a river. You're going to have to like watch out for like the roots. There's rocks. There's boulders. You might even have to climb a wall. So think about that path. Okay, now think about it. Now it's nighttime and you're now trying to hike this path. That'd be very difficult. Like without light, you're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're probably going to go the wrong way. And you're going to feel defeated pretty fast. And so God has given us his light. He's given us his word, his lamp to help us to navigate those conversations, those relationships. His word gives us insights and discernment. And it helps shows us the next steps and how to relate to those who are far from God. See, we need to immerse ourselves in the illuminating and path-lightened word of God. And so if you're struggling with these types of relationships and you're not taking God's word in regularly, I think that's where you should start. See, it's the word that helps us to know how to submit to God's plans in an unbelieving world. Right? The word might not tell you everything about everything, but it gives you a lens through which to look at everything. Right? And so it's essential for knowing God's plans. And the, his will for our life. It's essential for maintaining our witness. See, the world is watching. The brothers were watching Jesus. His disciples were watching. Everyone's watching. How is Jesus going to react to the demands on his life? He submits to God. He submits to God's plans. Will the world see us submitting to God's plans and trusting in his timing? Or will they see us frustrated because our life doesn't line up to the world's expectation of where we should be in a particular season of life? Right, the brothers wanted Jesus to go down to Judea already. He, they wanted his political career to be at a certain place. But God had a different plan for Jesus, a way better plan than just sitting on some worldly throne, overthrowing a puny little nation like Rome. See, I've walked the ruins of Rome. It's not there, but the kingdom of God is lasting forevermore. God was preparing to give his son the kingdom that will reign forever. God has better plans for us than this world. So do not be frustrated because your life doesn't line up with the timeline the world expects you to be at. Seek the Lord. Seek his kingdom. Because he's got better things for you. He had way better things for Jesus and for his brothers. And Jesus knew that. So he trusted God's timing. So how do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We submit to God's plans and timing. See, when we try to rush things and come out of God's plans, come out of God's timing, because we're looking at the world and their expectations, where you should be in your life season, is it God's plans? Is it his timing? And how do we know it is? Right? Are we seeking him daily? Are we surrendering to him? Are we listening to his revealed will in the word of God? Knowing that he's actually working something better out in our lives. We might not just be able to see it, but he's working something better for us. Like the brothers couldn't see it. 
but God was actually working for their good. God's timing didn't make sense to everyone who was trying to follow Jesus, including his brothers, and sometimes that's how it works in our lives. But will we submit to God's will and to his plans? Will we go to his word as it instructs our hearts on how to engage people who don't believe, who disagree with us? All right, so how do we engage with the unbelieving world? We do what Jesus did. Jesus taught and he didn't compromise God's truth. Look down with me, verse 11, it says this. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Right, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him and some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of, of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the, the, the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. So I love it. Jesus is so popular. He's so controversial that everyone's talking about him, right? So most of you guys have like the news app or some kind of news source, right? He would have been blowing up on everybody's news feeds. Like it would be the first thing, like every single outlet's just trying to give their angle on Jesus. You're going to have the liberal angle on Jesus, the conservative angle on Jesus, right? And everyone's just talking about Jesus, right? Every like meme pages would be making memes about Jesus and everybody's just like, Jesus, Jesus, right? And like, what's going on? Who is this guy? Like he was more popular, more controversial than Kanye West, right, in the medias right now, right? Like you think that, that, that sweater stunt was big, like he literally like, you know, healed a man on the Sabbath, right? So there's some controversial things happening in Jesus' life. And everyone's like asking like, oh, you know, tell me about Jesus. Who is this guy? Where is this guy? Right? And so people are, are questioning. The, the rulers want to kill him. All of this is happening. But check this out. People are doing this behind the scenes because they're afraid of the Jews. So they're like, they're using like private chats with disappearing messages so they can't, you know, be found out. And, and so they're trying to talk about him, right? But there's this tension. And it's just the, it's a, it's a thing that's on everybody's mind. Who is Jesus? What does he really come to do? And so in the midst of an unbelieving world, what we see Jesus do is he goes into the middle of the temple, which is the religious center of the time, the center of Jewish life, all eyes on him, in the middle of the one of the biggest feasts in Israel, and he begins to teach. He begins to teach. All right, we don't see him hiding behind the shadows. He's not getting behind the safety of a screen and saying, I don't agree with your stance. Right? He wasn't caught trolling, right? He's not like, I'm making these little comments without relational consequence. No, he goes to people in person and he speaks. And what he says is so profound that people are like, man, isn't this a carpenter's son? Like, how did he get so educated? Like, he's not even a rabbi. How? And he's out theologizing. He's out teaching the greatest teachers of the day. He's making them look like preschoolers as he's teaching the truth and the reality of God. And it's not just a bunch of knowledge, but it's actually affecting the heart and the soul. There's an authority given as he speaks with truth and the spirit. Jesus reveals then whose teaching he's teaching, whose truth he's bringing. He's like, this teaching is not mine, but it's, it's of him who sent me. It's God's teaching. So how do we follow Jesus in this unbelieving world? We teach God's truth and we don't compromise. Because here's the thing. All of us all have a truth that we're teaching. Our words, our priorities, our posts, our reels, right? our talking story with auntie and uncle at Malama's, right? Or brought a man next door. Like all of this talking, we're teaching something. Right? The conversations that we have at work, 
that we have online, how we present ourselves to the world, the world with our words is our teaching. And so the question is this, whose teaching are you teaching? Who are you being taught by? What are you being taught from? Because it's these things that become the teaching matter of your life. If someone followed you around for a week, what would they learn from you? What would they learn about Jesus and his teachings? See, our unbelieving friends and family, the unbelieving co-workers, they need to hear the teaching of God. And that doesn't mean that we got to host like a little Bible study and have all of our unbelieving people come over and like potluck. I can hope that they show up and like listen to you teach the Bible. Like that would be awesome if you do that. Like I'm coming. Right? But that probably won't happen anytime soon. And we have opportunities all the time, every day to teach the truth of God by how we speak and by how we live. Right? What I love about Jesus' life is, is one of his primary tools for witnessing for the kingdom and for his father and what God is doing in the world is teaching with his words and his life. And so as his disciples, we follow his example. Right? We, as Christ followers, we are called to teach others about who Jesus is with our words and with our lives. And so here's the tricky thing. Some, for some people, they're like, yes, like let's preach the truth. Like let's get on all social media platforms and just blast the world with truth. Like let's elect political representatives who stand for truth. Like let's blast anyone who poses it. Let's break down the doors of the Capitol and take this country for God. And see, the hard part about this is we could be so overtly for the truth, so brash, so brazen that we forget the heart of God and our delivery of the truth. See, the Pharisees were really good at truth. The religious rulers knew God's law better than most people, and yet they missed the heart of God. They would have been pro-life. They would have been for the marital union of man and wife, man and woman. They would have believed in the traditional definitions of gender. They would have stood for the, the right to bear arms, right? Peter would have liked that, right? right? The Pharisees would mark all those boxes. We might have actually accidentally you know, elected a Pharisee as president back then because they're hitting the marks. They stood for our policies and truth, yet they missed the heart of God. They have the knowledge of the truth, but they missed the heart of the truth. Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life. See, some people are totally down with being the salt of the earth, but they could just be so salty. There's like no grace. There's no compassion. There's no, I'm speaking with another human individual that was made in the image of God with a mind and personal experiences that I want to think through as I'm engaging with them in love. See, a lot of times it's just people's tone when they speak. It could be belittling and degrading and demeaning. They don't mean to, but it's just how it's coming off towards people who don't believe, who are far from God, the very ones that Jesus ended up going, going to. See, remember, Jesus didn't hang out with sinners. Check this out. Sinners hung out with Jesus. They wanted to be around him. They were attracted to him. They felt comfortable around him. And he was holiness in the flesh. He never compromised. He was the sinless son of God. But his love and his mercy, his care and his consideration and compassion for those who are far from God made him very attracted to be around. He never compromised the truth. He was the truth. He is the truth. See, the gospel is offensive, but we shouldn't be. Pastor and music artist Trip Lee says that the gospel itself is already offensive enough. We don't need to add offense to it by being jerks about everything. 
Right? We don't need to add offense to it by being condemning and self-righteous. We don't need to add offense to it by being incapable of, incapable of actually loving and being in relationship with people. We really want to show people the compassion of Jesus, even as we say very hard things. Can we teach the truth and still minister to our LGBTQ friends and family? Can we teach the truth and minister to our Muslim neighbor? Can we teach the truth and, and minister to our hyper-liberal progressive coworker? Or do we push truth in such a way that it burns bridges where no person far from God would want to even spend time with us? We need to learn the art of proclaiming truth in love like Jesus, who actually rebuked the religious hypocrites and extended his hand out to this sinful world with love, forgiveness, without ever compromising truth. See, sometimes our lives become a hindrance to the truth of God that we proclaim, but Jesus' life became an attractive invitation to the truth of God that he proclaimed. And so for some, you know, there's the all truth, very little grace, but then the pendulum can swing all the, other, the way the other side where it's just like they're so willing and wanting to be unoffensive. They want to be friends with unbelievers so much that they become ineffective in their witness. They become ineffective because they're now no longer preaching God's truth at all. Or maybe the truth they're teaching is diluted versions of it. And so they end up compromising it in order to keep relationships nice and keep bridges intact. And so we go the other way and then we compromise God's truth completely. Trying to be so friendly with the world that you couldn't tell them apart. But see, Jesus also didn't stay quiet. Right? Maybe it's that we don't engage in challenging conversations at work or with our family members. Or maybe there's multiple opportunities to share our faith or share God's perspective on a certain situation, but we either stay quiet or we just go along with the mainstream thought. I think a lot of times we tell ourselves that, man, well, my life's going to be a witness, which is true, definitely. But we need to remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Remember, our words are teaching something. And so whose teaching are you teaching? Jesus taught God's. I love it in this passage, people are like, man, how does this guy speak in this way? He's uneducated, but we know, I mean, he's the son of God, right? He's 100% God, 100% man, right? He had to, act, it is humanity. He had to grow in knowledge, wisdom, stature, and favor among men, right? Then he's given the Holy Spirit. He does some pretty incredible things in his humanity, and he's showing us the way, how we can follow him and speak God's truth in a way that confounds the world. Not because of our high intellectual prowess, but because it comes with insight into the heart of matters. The power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. I love it. John and Peter in the book of Acts, they're going out, they're preaching, they're doing ministry. And, you know, people are, are checking them out. And this is what they say. Is as they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained... They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, because of what they taught, right, they could tell these men had been with Jesus. Their teachings are coming from Jesus. And I'm challenged by this. Like, where are our teachings coming from? Right, is it our favorite news outlet, our favorite influencer or blogger or podcast? Maybe it's the people we spend time with. And these things aren't bad. But if we're not careful to watch over our hearts, these are the influential teachers of our lives and they shape the conclusions on life's matters. The disciples spent so much time with Jesus, they taught his teaching. And Jesus always spoke to the heart, right? Jesus always spoke to the heart. See, the world wants to stay on surface level stuff. 
And sometimes that's appropriate, but Jesus' teaching went to the heart. And this is what can differentiate us a lot of times from the world. See, the world likes to smoke screen, stay on the surface level. But when we listen to people, spend time with people, build relationships with our unbelieving friends and family and community members, and we spend time and listen, we pray for God's wisdom and discernment, and we're able to move into those heart spaces with them, right? Speaking into them from a biblical and spiritual stance, with truth. And I'm not quoting scripture every time I'm talking with my unsaved friends. But I'm letting God's truth come out of my mouth, come out of my life. And I get to move into those hard spaces with people, applying God's truth and wisdom to their life as I'm building relationships and creating trust and earning their ear. They, they know I'm a believer already, so I'm building bridges to share the gospel, to share my faith. And because I'm speaking God's truth, and when it's applied to people's life, it transforms lives. And so they keep wanting to come back. Don't stay on the surface. Build relationships to get to the heart. So who's teaching are you teaching? Where are you finding your truth? See, the world needs Jesus and needs truth. And we should be able to live in such a way that when people see us, they're like, man, how do they speak in such a way? And it's because we've been spending time with Jesus. And because we live for something different than the world lives for, which leads us to our last point. Don't get scared. Landing the plane. Jesus lived for the glory of God above all. Verse 17 says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching that I'm speaking, whether it's from God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. So he's pretty much saying, man, if you get my teachings, if, they understand, if they're understandable to you, then you know they're from God. Right? And then anyone who speaks from themselves, I mean, they're seeking their own glory, but I'm, speaking, I'm seeking the glory from, of the Lord, of, of my Father. He's true. And I am true because I'm speaking on his behalf. And so even though Jesus deserves the glory and the Father was making a way for Jesus to be glorified forevermore, Jesus' earthly ministry was ultimately for the glory of God. See, in John chapter 17, God is, Jesus is praying to the Father, right? And he says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. He's saying, Father, I've done everything you asked. I've glorified you. A summary statement of Jesus' life on earth was glorifying God. And so how do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We live for the glory of God. See, the world is always after its own glory, it's constantly seeking after its own glory. I know this because I have things like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, right? You just scroll for a little bit. It's like the greatest displays of self-glory, right? You're going to see all kinds of stuff there. You got like the, the, the TikTok dances, right, which I'm not that good at. But, I mean, it's like, okay, what's the purpose of that <coughs> self-glory, right? No, it's like you see these things, right? You got the, the, the obviously filtered selfies, which you look great, we can tell, right? And, uh, and then just the one thing I'm seeing a lot is just people's endless commentaries on what's trending, which, okay, and sometimes they're actually insightful, but what we see is this kind of reach for self-glory. And I'll admit, I, I post every couple years, right? And, um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't post. I'm not anti-social media. I think it can be a great tool. It could be dangerous, but I think it can be a great tool used rightly as a believer to share your life, to share your faith, to share your hobbies and your gifts and your talents. But the question is, is it all to the glory of God? I'm not saying that in every single post you have to go, oh, by the way, this is all for the glory of God. Right? Or in the, just read the description, all for the glory. I mean, you don't have to do that. But people can tell by the way we interact with this world whose glory we're after. And let me just be completely honest. I struggle here. 
Like we all struggle here because the self is constantly trying to take God's place, take the throne and get all the glory and, and get all the recognition. Like that's that battle of the flesh and the spirit. So we battle that. And what happens is when the world sees us as believers operating in the same way as the world, seeking after our own glory, just as, as much as everyone else, there's not a big difference. There's nothing that makes them go like, I want that. Jesus came seeking after the glory of God, not glorifying himself like every other rabbi, trying to make himself the best teacher. Look at my incredible teaching. No, he was for the glory of God. And so in our lives, we can follow Jesus and say, hey, this is what God says. This is God's truth. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Every good thing in my life is from him. My teachings from him, my knowledge, my wisdom, my ability, it's all from him. This is how Jesus operated, and it was the most incredible witness the world has ever seen. So our life, our social media feeds, the counsel that we give, our teaching, is it for God's glory? When the world sees us living for the glory of God, not living for the self, living for our little kingdom, but a life set on fire for Jesus, full of love and compassion and purpose. Or when they see the light of Christ in our life, it causes them to double take as we live against the grain of the world. Living for the glory of God is actually one of the greatest witnesses that we have as believers in an unbelieving world. And see, here's the moment where I'm glad that Jesus lived for the glory of God, that he submitted to the Father's plans. Because how did Jesus ultimately respond to the unbelieving world? The world that hated him, the world that didn't believe him, his brothers that didn't believe him, the naysayers, those that screamed and yelled, crucify him. What did Jesus do in response to the unbelieving world? He died for them. He died for them. The Father's plan and the Father's will was that Jesus would die for unbelievers so that they would be able to believe. Jesus struggled through the pain of family members not believing. He wrestled with skepticism. He felt the belittling remarks, the demeaning looks, and he laid down his life for them. He went up onto the cross and he took the penalty for their unbelief, the penalty of their sin, so they could receive spiritual sight, believe, and be saved. John 15 says, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 3.16 says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We lay down our lives. We don't push them away because of political differences. We don't keep them at a difference because they don't believe. No, we engage them in truth and love. It's as we serve them, as we give our lives. And let's be reminded that each one of us in this room were unbelievers at a time. I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home. There was a day that you weren't a believer and there was a day that you were given spiritual sight. You were given the Holy Spirit. You put your faith in Jesus and you were saved. Jesus came for you. He came for each one of us here. And he used people in your life to do it. And we're called to do that for others. This is what we see in the gospel. See, the plan that Jesus was submitting to was that God in his mercy and his grace was making a way for sinners to be saved, unbelievers to believe. The Bible says that every single one of us were that. We all sinned. We all didn't believe. But God in his mercy made a way. We all fell short. But the goodness of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped in and he saw our unbelieving heart. And he pursued us. He persevered with us. He walked with us. And he died in our place. He rose again from the dead. And then he invites us to follow him, trust in him, and love people the way that we have been loved. Each one of us have been given people in our lives, our sphere of influence. People who are far from God and close to us. And we're being called to step into those relationships with truth and love. To pray for them. To pray for opportunities to share with them. 
to plant seeds that would, that would germinate to salvation. You might not have every logical and philosophical answer for them, but we have the love of Jesus. We got God's truth and our life's witness as we live for his glory and submit to his timing. And I want to encourage the people in this room that have unbelieving family. And you're like, that's great, Danny. But I've done all that. I've done all that. I'm trying to submit to God's plan. I've taught God's truth. I'm trying to live for his glory. And I still have family members who don't trust in Jesus. I'm trying. I'm doing these things. And I just want to encourage you that, that God sees you. Jesus understands. He wrestled with his unbelieving family. And he didn't give up. Right? Jesus didn't give up on them. He didn't give up on us. He persevered with us. And so just know in the midst of your prayers and you're struggling and you're crying out and you're wrestling with God, God sees you. He's with you. Be encouraged today that your witness is seen in heaven. It glorifies your God. And your witness will be used. It will not be forgotten. We don't know the end of the story. And so we trust God. We trust him in his timing, that he is good. Whether it takes weeks, months, years, we continue to give people Jesus' love. Give him his truth, not giving up on them, walking with them, loving on them. Until you're the person they turn to when they hit that wall. That your Christ-like witness is where they turn to when they don't have anywhere else to go. And so how do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We submit to God's plan and his timing. In our relationships, not being pressured by the world. We teach God's truth. We don't compromise. But we teach it in love, not missing the heart of Jesus when we share his truth. We live for the glory of God. We live against the grain of self-glory. And we use our platforms, our abilities, our gifts, our lives for his glory. How do we follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? We look to the gospel. And we see Jesus laying down his life for them. And so we lay down our lives. And the way that we love and the way that we serve and the way that we sacrifice for those far from God in our life will be our greatest witnesses as we represent Jesus and his love to those around. Because it was Jesus' unrelenting love and sacrifice on the cross that won over hearts. It's the same gospel message and the same type of sacrificial love that will win over the hearts of this unbelieving world. So let us follow our Messiah into this unbelieving world, seeking to glorify him as we love and teach as he did. Amen.